will remain standing, please, and take your copy of the scriptures out, and let's turn together to Mark chapter 9 this morning. Mark chapter 9, we're going to read uh, verses 30, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. We're not going to look at that whole passage this morning, but uh, it all kinds of goes together, so we'll read that whole section and begin looking at it this morning. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. Let us hear God as he speaks to us this morning. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, He said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. To the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will, it, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we thank you, God, for your, for your word. We thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you for this record of the work of Christ. And as we uh, look to these things today, as we once again are are confronted with the, the greatness of the, the work and of the sacrifice of Christ. And as we are confronted with his commands to us, Lord, we pray that you would help us in our hearing, that we may be hearers, uh, but not hearers alone, but doers as well, Father. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, there are a few children here today. Children, how many of you like school? Do you like school? 
Yeah? One, Owen's the only one that likes school, I guess. Oh, no, here's some more. Okay, some of the kids like school. For me, it was kind of a mixed bag. Sometimes I liked it, sometimes I didn't. Uh, I can't say, though, that I have wonderful memories. I am extremely grateful for the three years that I spent in seminary, coming to a deeper understanding of God and his word and learning how to, how to read that word and understand it, to open and learn what it says, to organize what, what I learned, to present it to others, to, to learning the original languages, studying the history of the church, uh, even learning about the errors that have come against the church and, and how we would refute those. A great opportunity it was, great times. Um, harder work than I've ever had mentally at any other point of my life, uh, but I'm so thankful for the time that I had uh, sitting under those professors, those men of God, uh, and learning from them. Uh, but nothing is more instructive to us than the opportunity that we all have through the Bible to sit at the feet of Christ himself, to learn from the chief prophet that God has given to his people, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he speaks the word of God to us and as we learn from him. We're able to do that here in this book as we are making our way through it. We kind of envy the disciples, I think, from time to time who were able to literally sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him, to be students in the school of Christ for three and a half years. What, a, what the blessing that was, what an opportunity that was. But God has given to us his word so that we too can, can learn from him as they learn from him. Today we are going to continue to do that as we, as we look at this passage before us. We continue now in our, our section of Mark's gospel, this part of the gospel that's focusing on Jesus teaching his disciples. You know, I've mentioned this a couple times, but it bears repeating that in this second part of Mark's gospel, which began back toward the end of chapter 8, that Jesus' ministry now has, has narrowed, it is, it is focused now specifically on him teaching his disciples, pouring himself into them and equipping them to be, as the Apostle Paul said, the foundation of the church, with Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, he said in Ephesians 2. And in this section, with all of these, these lessons that are being taught by Jesus, we are blessed to come to this, to look at it, and kind of, as it were, to audit this class uh, that Jesus is teaching to his disciples. And this section, which we begin this morning here and runs through the end of chapter 9, presents us with several short teachings of Christ, specifically on the subjects of humility, uh, on the dangers of misleading others, on the seriousness of sin in general. As we come to it, this also marks the end of Jesus' ministry, as Mark records it, in the region of Galilee. As we've gone through Mark, that's sort of been where we were. This is where, where Mark, um, for a good deal of, of Mark's gospel, he focuses, in fact, almost exclusively 
on the time that Jesus spent in and around the region of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, the the cities around that sea. Uh, But at the end of chapter 9, Jesus is going to continue his journey toward Jerusalem. And so this is the end of his time ministering in Galilee. And as he continues his journey toward Jerusalem, we're reminded of the reason for that, for his journey. In fact, that's the topic of the first lesson today, which gets us into our text for today, and it is the lesson of humility and the Savior. Mark says there in verse uh, verse 30 of chapter 9, he says that they went on from there and passed through Galilee. I'll stop there for a minute. I, I just mentioned that Mark records Jesus' ministry in and around that area. Well, most certainly you will remember that recently they had been north of Galilee. Remember they went up to the north to that town called Caesarea Philippi? And probably even a bit north of that, as they went, many scholars uh, recognized to Mount Hermon, which is believed to be where the transfiguration took place, and that's a little north of Caesarea Philippi. But now in verse 30, we we read that they leave Caesarea Philippi and come back down to the region of Galilee. So now they're heading south, and they're heading ultimately to Jerusalem. They come to Caesarea Philip, or they come to the region of Galilee, rather, although Mark tells us that they're not planning on staying there. In verse 30, he mentions that when he says that they, they passed through Galilee. Again, remember that Jesus has now set his face, set his, his purpose to go to Jerusalem. And why has he done that? Well, because he knows that his time is beginning to draw to a a climax and to a close. He is and has always been always aware that his mission here is very specific. Not only at the beginning, but at the end, the goal. To put it quite simply, Jesus has come to earth to die. Not as a martyr for the faith, but as the Savior and the Redeemer of his people. He has come, and now he is headed toward Jerusalem. He's been ministering all over. Uh, Mark records mostly here. The other Gospels record that he's been in other areas as well. But now he is headed to Jerusalem to die, to die for the sins of you, if you're a Christian, if you trust him, to die for everyone who has and will trust him. To by dying and in dying to put himself in the place of sinners. To put himself in the direct path of the wrath of God for the sake of sinners. That he might take their punishment on himself. To be cursed by God so that they would not be, so that you and I would not be. That's why Jesus is now just passing through Galilee on his way south. And Mark adds there at the end of verse 30 that he did not want anyone to know. 
Again, we've talked about that in the past, and part of the reason surely for that lies in the fact that he's trying to keep a low profile until the proper time when, as we saw a few weeks ago, when he will be hailed and welcomed, even if it is only for a short time, as the Messiah and the servant of God, the the son of David and the son of God. But here Mark also gives us a, a different and a very specific reason why he wants to keep his presence there very quiet. We've seen that wherever Jesus goes, it seems, huge crowds come and follow him. And that he deals with them, he ministers to them. But here he wants to be apart from that. Look at verse 31. It gives us the reason why. It says, for he was teaching his disciples. That's just what we said a few moments ago. This is, this is class time. School is in, and he wants to guard this particular time with his disciples. And at least for the rest of chapter 9, while they are in Galilee, he's able to do this. Mainly because we'll see that they go pretty much straight to a house, they go in and they stay there. And as he does teach his disciples, He takes this time to give his disciples, first of all, the second of three prophecies of what lay lay in store for him, his coming death. In verse 31, it says, For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, he's told them that earlier. In chapter 8, in verse 31, (coughs) he told them this. But this time's different. There's something different about his, his, his prophecy, his prediction about this, his revelation of what is going to happen. And what's different is that in this mention is the fact that these events will not just be sort of a result of a, of a random series of events. It's not going to be just a, a chance occurrence. But look at what he says. He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So this is not just that Jesus is going to end up at the wrong place at the wrong time with the result that he'll fall into the hands of his enemies, but he, Jesus, is going to be delivered into their hands for the purpose of them putting him to death. His arrest, the beatings, the mockings, the trial, and ultimately his crucifixion is the result of purposeful actions on the part of others. And it's true on on three levels. The first is that it is true in the sense that Jesus was the object of hatred and envy and jealousy, particularly among the leaders, the religious leaders of the Jews. The Jewish leaders hated Jesus. He challenged their authority. He challenged Uh, their interpretation of the Mosaic law and challenged their addition of their own material to those laws and then treating them as if they were part of those laws as well. He challenged that. 
And back in chapter 3, we see the result of this in that when the Pharisees get together with that pro-Roman political group, the Herodians, uh, and they get together to come up with a plan, Mark 3, 6 says, a plan against him, how to destroy him. We could also look at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. Jesus comes there and as he is in the city, he witnesses a, a hopeless, helpless, invalid man of 38 years, once again failing to, to reach the pool of Bethesda that he might receive his healing. And so what does Jesus do? The compassionate, loving Christ, he heals him on the Sabbath, by the way, doing the work of God his Father. And, and so the Jews, John says in John 5.18, were seeking all the more to kill him. In John 8, Jesus confronts the Pharisees and says to them, you seek to kill me. And they don't argue with that. Because by this time, they do. And then all of this, of course, reaches a crescendo when the Jews finally see their chance and arrest Jesus. And after hauling him before their own religious leaders in sham proceedings, they deliver him into the hands of the Romans who as a result of the Jews' insistence, they end up crucifying him. Pilate even comments that it is because of envy that, Matthew 27, 18 says, that they handed him over. And so as Jesus says here, that he will be delivered into the hands of men. This is what he's talking about. On one level, because the Jews hated him. There's another level of this, or another instance of this. Second, it is true that Jesus was delivered into the hands of men because he was the victim of a traitor. We all know that story. And what is both the the saddest and the most despicable story, Jesus was delivered into the hands of men by Judas Iscariot. One of his own. One of the twelve one who had been with Jesus for all of this time, who sat at Jesus' feet, as we're doing this morning, as the disciples were, and learned from him and ministered with him. He was one of the ones who who was given authority to go out and to preach and to heal and to cast out demons. He, Judas, is sitting there in this house in Capernaum with Jesus and the disciples as Jesus prophesied that this was going to happen. By Judas, Judas, Jesus was delivered into the hands of men through treachery, leading a huge contingent of Roman soldiers in the middle of the night into the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus and the disciples had gone to pray and then pointing him out as the one being betrayed, as the one who should be arrested with a kiss. That's the second way, is that he was delivered into the hands of men because he was the victim of a traitor. But there's one more way, and this is the primary way, the primary thing that we need to understand, I think, this morning. And it's a way that seems very different than the other two. And it is, even though it's intimately connected, and that is that Jesus was delivered into the hands of men because of love. 
not just love, because of the greatest love. The greatest love the world has ever seen. We read about it, of course, in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he, what? He gave his only begotten Son. And whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And the idea here of God giving his Son for the sins of the world means, yes, that he sent him, but not just that. It means that he gave his son over to suffer these things. Paul explains this a little more over in Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bibles available, maybe you'd turn over to Romans chapter 8. Paul has been speaking here um, about the immeasurable blessings that we we have as a result of being rescued from our sin through the work of Christ. And he comes to verse 31, and after all of these things, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then this. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He says, God did not spare his son, but on the contrary, he gave him up. He offered him up. He gave him over. The word there in the Greek refers to handing someone over into the custody of another. It means to surrender someone. We saw that, didn't we, in Pilate's statement that it was because of envy that the Jews delivered him over, handed Jesus over, surrendered Jesus to them. But we read that even before that, that God had delivered his son up. Makes me think of the Old Testament book of Isaiah in that famous 53rd chapter that when Isaiah says in verse 10 that it pleased the Lord to crush him. See, it's saying the same thing. What, and what an incredible statement that is. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, that God took some grotesque, sadistic pleasure in seeing his divine, eternal son mocked and tortured and nailed to a cross and left to, to hang there for hours. God forbid that kind of thinking. But what it means is that God was willing to go to that extreme because of the great benefit that such an action would bring. And that benefit, Christian brothers and sisters, is your salvation. And it pleased God to effect that through the only way that it could be effected, through him handing over his son. It pleased the Father to put this into motion because of the great benefit that it produced. And, of course, we know that Jesus was, was a part of this plan, that he went along with the divine plan for the redemption of man most willingly. And as we consider that, we consider the humility of Jesus. In all of this, we see the humility of our Lord, that he willingly did it. He willingly endured all of this for others. Our Lord, who, to use Paul's words 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Peter confirms all of this in the book of Acts in chapter 2 and verse 23. Listen, Jesus, he said, was delivered up. There's that phrase again. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And because of that, Peter goes on speaking to the Jews who had gathered there on the day. He said, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. You see, beloved, that gives us the ultimate meaning of this statement here back in Mark 9, 31, that Jesus, the Son of Man, is going to be delivered into the hands of men, ultimately by his Father. What greater love could be imagined than this? That not only that Jesus would lay down his life for the salvation of his people, but that God the Father would deliver over, hand over his Son into the hands of sinners for that purpose. Now, of course, there is gloriously more to Jesus' statement to the, to the disciples, more instruction to the disciples, because as we saw a couple of weeks ago, as we gathered together, the story definitely does not end with Jesus being delivered into the hands of men and being killed and being buried. But then there's this, back to our text. He says, and after three days, he will rise. We've talked about this before, that the resurrection was God the Father saying, I accept this. The purpose for which I delivered my son over has been accomplished and it is good. And I accept it. The good news is that Jesus didn't remain in the grave, amen? But he has risen, just as he said. But it seems that that message was still not getting through were being processed by the disciples. Now, granted, Jesus has been talking about this, but none of this has happened yet. So they're not looking back on it like we are as as an accomplished fact in history. They're seeing it as Jesus predicting that it's going to happen. It seems that they're just still not getting it. We heard back earlier in this chapter that they were questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And here, as well, still we read that the disciples are, they're failing this part of the lesson. Because verse 2 says, they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Why were they afraid to ask him? Well, maybe because he's told them this already, and they should understand it. Their pride, perhaps, doesn't want to admit that they haven't understood it. Or perhaps... More likely, because over these two mentions of what is going to take place, from the first to the second one, especially with what we just talked about that's now added to this uh, second one, the idea of him being handed over, 
the, the picture is starting to get darker, more ominous. And so perhaps they're simply afraid to hear what else might be in store if they ask. One commentator puts it this way, that they understand enough to be afraid to ask to understand more. And besides that, they've been involved in their own conversation during their journey that day. And that brings us to the second lesson that Jesus has for the disciples on this trip, and that is humility in receiving the least. So this group now arrives in Galilee. Specifically, they come, the text says, to Capernaum, which was, remember, Jesus' base of operations during his uh, Galilean ministry. And it appears, as Mark reports it here, that they go straight to a house. And this, again, is probably Peter's house. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 21, uh, chapter 1, verses 29 and 31, chapter 2, verse 1, sort of lead us in that direction that this house where they based their, their work was probably Peter's house. And Mark says, now that when, they were, when he was in the house, that is when he's with them in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? <laughs> it was one of those strangely comical things as he looks at his disciples and says, what were you guys talking about on the way here? And as we know what they were talking about, can you imagine their faces? Well, he's caught us. We're busted. Talking about something ridiculous. Mark says that they kept silent. What are they going to say? It's interesting, a second ago they were afraid to ask something. Now they're afraid to answer Jesus' question. And the reason is quite understandable when we read verse 34 that tells us that they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. The fact, of course, that they were, that they were even having that discussion shows that they were not learning the lessons that Jesus had been teaching. Jesus is talking about the ultimate in humility as he's going to be killed and everything for them. And they're, they're talking about who's the greatest. And I seriously doubt that their discussion was, was something like the other disciples saying, no, Matthew, you are greater than me. I doubt that's the way it went. Perhaps it was just, perhaps Peter and James and John started all of this. Maybe they were saying to the disciples, yeah, we... We were called away by Jesus, just, just us three, taking up the mountain to go on this special field trip, and, and now we, we can't tell you what happened because Jesus just told us, and he told us to keep it to ourselves. And maybe that's what started this. By the way, this won't be the last time that they discuss the topic of which one among them is the greatest, but it's clearly an indication that they're not getting this. It's inappropriate in the extreme that such an argument should take place here as Jesus is talking so much about humility. And though they don't say anything, though they don't answer, Jesus, of course, knows what they were talking about. And so he calls the class to order. You know, the kids are running around in the classroom and the teacher comes in and says, all right, settle down, everybody get in your seats, it's time for the class to start. That's what Jesus does here. Verse 35 says, He sat down and called the twelve. 
That's the way it worked. That's when a, a rabbi would teach in this, that time period, the teacher would sit down. That was the formal position of, of teaching. And then the students would sit around him at his feet. And that's what he calls them to. So this is a formal class session now together. And he teaches them and he teaches us one of the most fundamental lessons of Christianity, and that's the lesson of humility, the lesson of servanthood that the first will be last. That, as Paul writes to us, that we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. It's in Romans 12.3. Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 2, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's Christianity. That's how you live as a Christian. Ephesians 4.2 says, I urge you, Paul again, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love. Humility, beloved, is the hallmark of Christianity. The hallmark of the Christian. It permeates Christianity. God condescended to send his son to deliver his son over. The divine, eternal son of God, according again to Philippians 2, humbled himself to leave glory, to take a human nature, to dwell among sinners bound with the physical weaknesses of that human nature. He humbled himself in submitting himself to mockery and to mistreatment, to arrest and ultimately to torture and death of the most agonizing and shameful type imaginable, all for the good of others. All for the good of you. For us who hated him. And so Jesus teaches his disciples. And remember, that includes us today. Jesus is saying, if you want to be first, if you want to talk about that, if you want to talk about greatness in, in the Christian church, if you want to talk about greatness in my kingdom, you don't become great by selfish ambition. You don't become great by pressing your advantage or by climbing over the backs of others or by arguing with one another of who is going to be greater. You don't pursue greatness in my kingdom, in other words, the way that the world does. Greatness in the kingdom of God comes by being a servant of others. By sacrificing your will, your goods, to others for the sake of others. Greatness in the kingdom of God comes by giving up insisting on your own way and getting your own way and allowing others to get theirs. It comes by humbly asking for forgiveness, even when you are the one who has been more wronged, more mistreated by another. On the other side, greatness comes by extending forgiveness, offering forgiveness, even if you don't feel like it even if you don't want to. 
and by really forgiving people, putting past hurts in the past, not bringing them up, not continuing to make others pay for their sins against you as long as you can. Greatness in Christianity comes by sacrificing your free time to help others, by deferring to others even when you're not being forced to, by taking the lowest place, by taking the most unseen jobs around the church, and not making sure in some other ways that people know that you're doing it. Greatness in the kingdom of God, beloved, comes by not insisting on greatness. But like our Lord, seeking to serve, not to be served. We've talked about this idea of the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. That Jesus' Jesus' path to, to glory came through death, came through crucifixion, came through suffering. And it's the same as we've seen in past messages. It's the same for us. We need to be willing to give place to others. Now, Jesus isn't saying here, of course, that there shouldn't be structure, that there shouldn't be leaders in order for things to be done decently and in order, in order for a marriage or family or workplace or society or the church, in order for those things to function, there need to be leaders and there need to be those who are led. But the attitude of the leaders and the followers is to be out of the right biblical mindset, knowing that we all have a master that we serve. And we all serve him. Colossians 4.1 says, Masters, that is to say you who are over others, treat your bondservants, those who are under you, treat them justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I won't say too much about it because I asked you to think about it, but let me just say Job. If anyone would be first, Jesus says, he must be last Last of all and servant of all. And beloved, that call goes out to us as well today. Then Jesus adds a, to this teaching, he adds a, a visual element to the question or to answer the question, and who is worthy of such sacrificial love and service? Well, look at verse 36. It says, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So picture the scene. They're in this house. By the way, a household that has infants in it. I'll just leave that for later. But he takes this child And the word refers to a very young child. Um, Although when he takes this child up, the the lesson has to do here not so much with the physical age or the innocence uh, or mental capacity of the child, but it has to do with status. The child that Jesus takes up in his arm, and it would have been any child, represented the lowest order in the social strata. And the point here is that the lowest, the most humble, the weakest, those with the least dignity, 
In this time and place, those with the the least possibility of surviving for the next few years, those people must be served. Elsewhere, Jesus will command his disciples, his followers, that they must themselves become like little children in Matthew 18.3. But here he says that the dignity of a person to be served by us does not deal or is, is, is not represented by the social strata that they're in. It's not tied to their social position. All are to be served. All are to be served equally, whether disciple or baby. In fact, we see that here that Jesus identifies himself with the lowest, when he says in verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. That is, whoever for the the sake and honor of God, according to God's command as my servant, whoever humbles himself to consider all people as worthy of honor and service and whoever receives such a person in that way receives me. And then he takes that on up the line when he says, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And that's the lesson. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, be humble people, honor all people. In the Old Testament, God specifically makes known his care for and his demand that his people show care for those who through no fault of their own are marginalized, the widows and the orphans. In the New Testament, in Matthew 25, Jesus again identifies service to those types of people with service to him. Remember in uh, Matthew 25, verse 40, he says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of one of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Sacrificial service to others, even to the most insignificant ones, God considers service to him who is above all. Which means, Christian, that humble service to the insignificant is not insignificant at all. In fact, it's commanded. So the question as we wrap up here, the question that we should ask ourselves Remember, the disciples, they were having their discussion as they were walking along the way. But the question that we should have among ourselves, the question that we should discuss among ourselves, is not who is the greatest, but who is the servant of all. Because that person, and let us each pray and strive for it to be us, that person is the most like Christ. These are just the first two lessons. There are more to come, and we'll be looking at them next week and, if if necessary, the week after. But Jesus' teaching about humility and the, the supreme example of humility as he is delivered over to others willingly in order to be crucified. And then our command, the command to us to be servants to others, to be humble ourselves. That's our lesson in the school of Christ for today.
Let's pray. Father, help us. This goes so much against our our nature, our fallen nature. We, We want to be the focus. We want to, for people to know who we are, what we do. But we pray that you would keep us from that. We pray that you would teach us humility. And as we look at Christ, who redeemed us, who obtained eternal redemption for us, he also gave to us an example that we are to be humble people. We are to be servants. Even as he said that he came not to be served but to serve, Lord. Let that be our our desire. We pray that you would help us. We pray that your spirit would work in us to serve one another because knowing that as we do so, that ultimately we serve you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.